Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology of the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Richard Alston for a conversation about how and why Rome went from a republic to an empire. We're not only going to speak about some of the potential inflection points for when this transition occurred, but we're going to speak about some of the factors at play during this period from a societal to a political to a militaristic perspective. Dr. Alston is professor and head of the classics department at Royal Holloway at the University of London. He's the author of numerous publications on Roman history that spans over several decades at this point. A couple monographs as examples include Rome's Revolution, the Roman Civil Wars, and the Fall of the Republic that was published by Oxford University Press, and Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117, that was published by Routledge. Welcome to the call, Richard. And thank you for having me. So before we get into the specifics of the transition for somebody newer to uh, the roman history conversation some people might not realize there's actually even a difference between the republic and and the roman empire there's even there was even the roman kingdom at one point be- before the uh before the republic so can can we start at uh at a higher level, what what are the characteristic, the main characteristic differences between a, the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire? Then we can get into some of the specifics from from there about what actually happened. Yeah, I mean, Roman history is divided into three parts. There's, there's the regal period, which runs from Romulus and Remus around about 750 uh, BC to the foundation of the Republic in 509 when the Romans kicked out the kings and established a government which was more democratic. It was run by magistrates, led by two figures, two consuls, who were elected on an annual basis. And they ran the business through a senate, uh, which was a group of former Roman magistrates, mainly drawn from a landed aristocracy. And this was the famous Roman Senate, and it was extremely successful as a political organization, running Rome from 509 down to the fall of the Republic, which is dated in various points, but around about 40 uh, BC. And at 40 BC and around, there was a series of civil wars, and this Senate lost those civil wars. And this long tradition of government by an aristocratic or an elected aristocratic system uh, lapsed and you then had a dominant figure an emperor who emerged first emperor being uh, augustus and that seems to change everything about the way in which roman politics works Mm. and to a certain extent it also changes much about how roman society works and no longer was it a competitive electoral politics but you get this hereditary monarchy which is associated with figures who wield absolute power and have come down famously to us as wielders of absolute power, like Gaius Caligula or, or Nero. Mm-hmm. And then it, it runs on into the later empire uh, when you get figures like Constantine and culminates really in the conversion to Christianity before the barbarians arrive uh, in uh, the 5th century, about mm-hmm. 410. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So when we talk about the Republic going from uh, that status to the empire, what's the inflection point? What actually happens um, that causes the transition? 
It's a really difficult question. It's difficult because when Octavian moved or changed his status and changed his name to become Augustus, mm -hmm. he represented that not as a revolutionary moment where they have an invention of a monarchy, but as a restoration of Republican values. So after the Battle of Actium, when he comes back to, to Rome, he proclaims himself the defender of liberty and the defender of the Republic. And he gives speeches in the Senate in which he announces that he has saved Rome and he is now returning the control of Rome to the Senate and the people. Mm. And everybody gets very excited. They give mm -hmm. him honors. He's allowed to put olive trees in front of his, his uh, gates. Uh, his name is changed. Uh, shields are put up proclaiming his virtues. Statues are, are erected across the, across the city. Mm -hmm. And later historians look at this and say, well, look, here he is saying he has restored the Republic, but he's then in charge politically for the rest of his life. And it's a long life. It's, it's another uh, 42 years in which he runs the Roman state. And then he passes that on to his uh, adoptive son. But even as he passes that on in his last will and testaments to the Roman people, he proclaims that he has restored the Republic. Uh, he has restored traditional ways of, of, of governing. So there isn't a key moment mm. uh, where you can say the world has changed. And even at the time, the historians took different positions on it. So the great biographer of the Caesars, Suetonius, makes Julius Caesar the first Caesar. Mm. Uh, and you would then say that the imperial system under Suetonius's model starts in 49. Mm -hmm. Cassius Dio, a Greek historian writing much later on, thinks the whole system starts around about 28 uh, BC. Uh, the historian uh, Tacitus, again writing about 100 years later, mm -hmm. thinks it's a process so that gradually during the reign of Augustus, he brings into himself all the functions of the Senate and all the powers of the state. And by the end of his uh, life, he is effectively an emperor. But there is no word that the Romans have for emperor until really quite a lot later. So there's nothing that they, they entitle Octavian that makes him something specifically different. He describes himself very often as a magistrate, a magistrate of the Republic. So the transition that is, is a blurred transition. It's not like revolutionary movements you get in, say, uh, modern cultures where you have mm -hmm. to a, a, a Russian revolution where everything changes. This is a processual change. It happens over time. So from a phonology and taxonomy perspective, there are different monikers that are associated with this topic that are quite common. Terms like Augustus and Caesar and Emperor, etc. Can you take a moment and share some of the similarities and differences between these terms? Yeah, well, some of these are just names. So Caesar is just a name. So Julius Caesar is the son of Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it is uh, a name uh, that is in the family. And uh, when Julius Caesar dies, he dies without a child. Uh, so he adopts his nephew, Octavian. And Octavian then changes his name to also become Caesar. Mm -hmm. And that process is then repeated under the first emperors so that Caesar becomes associated with the emperor and becomes a, a title of the emperor. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the word we use for emperor uh, derives from the Latin word imperator, and imperator is the uh, word for general. Uh, a general is someone who wields power, which in Latin would be imperium. Mm-hmm. Now, you become an imperator in the Republic after winning a battle. And if you win a battle in a spectacular way, your soldiers gather around and they call you uh, or hail you as imperator. Mm-hmm. Now, once you've done that, you write to the Senate and say, the soldiers have called me imperator, and the Senate say, right, you can add that to your title. So imperator is a title, an honorific title, which means general. Mm. Um, and you can be hailed as imperator numerous times after numerous victories. So the use of the word imperator refers to the military power that the emperors had, and specifically that Augustus had. Now, as Augustus becomes more important politically, we get a third title that gets associated with him, and that's the title of princeps. Mm -hmm. And princeps means first man or first citizen, and it's the leader of the Senate. And that often goes, normally goes, to the oldest man in the Senate. And in the Republic, you might have several people who are called principes, the leading men of the Senate. You'd have one princeps, or leading man of the Senate, who would speak first in debates. And when he comes back after the defeat of Antony and Cleopatra, Mm -hmm. and he enters the Senate, they break with precedent by declaring him princeps, by declaring him first man. Mm -hmm. It brings no power, it's an honor, it's a title, uh, it's just a mark of respect. When the Romans want to bring some definition to what Augustus is later on, they start to use the word princeps or principatus, I mean the principate, uh, to represent his period of hegemony, so his period period in which he is in charge. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a very vague term. It just means that he's the first man. And that actually represents something really important about how Roman politics works. It doesn't work primarily through titles. It works through influence. It's the way in which an individual influences those around them in order that they do what he says. And that's often quite informal uh, as a process. So although you might have magistrates who have considerable executive power, they always rely upon those around them in the Republic, the leading members of the Senate, mm-hmm. to advise them as to what to do. So in Roman politics, influence is often more important than legal status or legal power. Mm-hmm. Did the term imperato, did it exist prior to the empire? Prior. Okay. So, uh, any Roman general operating under the Republic who had a success could be hailed as an imperator. Mm-hmm. And then that would be sometimes added to the nomenclature. So when they were being addressed officially, they might be called imperator uh, to differentiate themselves from those individuals who'd not had military successes. And if you're a really successful uh, individual, you might be called, hailed imperator several times. So an Augustan coinage, for example, uh, he, na- he lists the numbers of times he's been consul, will also list the number of times he's been hailed as, as imperator. Mm-hmm. Now, in the imperial period, because imperator comes to be associated with the highest position, 
it's only members of the imperial family who get hailed as imperator. So really after the Augustan period, uh, when someone is described as an imperator, they mean general, but they also mean emperor in the sorts of ways in which we use, use emperor. I understand. Now, is the name Augustus, is that solely demarcated to um, an, a name or is that also an appellation? So a, a title given to certain people as well throughout the Roman Empire. Augustus is an invention uh, of this period. So mm -hmm. uh, when he comes into the Senate after the defeat of Mark Antony and Cleopatra in January 27, and he gives all his power back to the senators, they debate about what title they should give him to mark this extraordinary benefit he's given mm -hmm. to the Roman people. Uh, they think they might call him Romulus um, after the first king of Rome. And that's a really interesting title uh, because it signifies an idea that Octavian, as he was then, uh, uh, had refounded the city, had remade the city anew. And so he should be associated with the man who first made the city. But the problem with Romulus is that it's a myth which has a bad ending. He, first of all, he kills his brother with a spade, which is never a good look. Um, but uh, there are two stories about his death, uh, one of which is there is a thunderstorm and he's taken up to heaven by the gods, and the other is there's a thunderstorm and he's ripped apart by the senators, which again is not a good look. Um, so they rethink that, and somebody comes up with the name Augustus, which means something like the revered one, uh, the one who has some sort of religious uh, value. And there is also a story of foundation there, because Rome is said by one of the first poets to be, uh, um, to have been founded with august auguries, so reverential omens of the future. Mm -hmm. So it's a quasi-religious term which has a vague connotations, but not a very precise meaning. And then it's then used for all the later emperors. So when Tiberius becomes emperor after Augustus, mm -hmm. he then takes the name uh, Augustus as well. So uh, by the time of t January 27, the man who was born as Octavius uh, has been adopted by Julius Caesar to become Gaius Julius Caesar. He's now become Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus. Is there any difference then between the term Augustus and Caesar? Are there are there are they synonyms or is there a nuance difference? By the late Augustan period, um, you have a process of adoption whereby people take the name mm -hmm. Caesar. Mm -hmm. So Augustus adopts his stepson Tiberius, mm -hmm. who will then become Tiberius Caesar. Okay. And he then subsequently adopts his nephew, Germanicus, who becomes Germanicus Caesar. Um, right. But Tiberius does not become Augustus until Augustus dies. I understand. So the giving yeah. of the title of Augustus becomes the mark by which uh, an emperor is, is identified. And Germanicus also mm -hmm. doesn't become Augustus, become Augustus at all, uh, because he dies before Tiberius. But each of the emperors then becomes Augustus. So there's a, a nuanced difference between yeah. the two. So when Octavian comes back from that battle in 30 BC, is is 
is there still consoles at play? This is the, one of the one of the oddities of this system is that much of the Republican system continues to function. So although uh, everything seems to change in all the political accounts and all authority is concentrated on um, concentrated on Augustus, the Senate continues to meet. Magistrates continue to be elected or appointed. Laws continue to be passed through the political assemblies. But it's clear that Augustus determines everything that happens in political terms. So it's the formal structures of the Republic are retained and are in fact retained all the way through to the ends of the imperial system, which in the West was 470 and in the East was in the 7th century. Even though you have an emperor who is effectively taking all the decisions, so you have a, a monarchy operating with the institutions of a republic uh, mm. still still working. How did Octavian rule then? So he gets uh, proclaimed as Augustus. How was he as a ruler in terms of his relationship to the Senate? Well, it's, again, it's quite difficult to know, um, in part because as Octavian and then later Augustus, he wasn't the most kindly gentleman uh, ruler. He ruled through civil wars initially and through a process of prescription whereby enemies uh, or he had identified had their names written up on whiteboards uh, and then they would be uh, hunted down by death squads through the streets of Rome. So he was a notably violent individual. He would not have taken kindly to anybody after the defeat of Antony and Cleopatra showing open opposition to him. So we will presume that most of the Senate who were opposed to him would hide that opposition. There is quite a lot of evidence of people being dissatisfied with Augustan rule, but this never breaks out into some sort of formal uh, opposition. Mm. And he does then influence the workings of the traditional Republican system indirectly and directly. So directly, he appoints the consuls um, by saying that only two candidates can run for the consulship in any one year. And they are the two candidates he chooses. Mm. He appoints the major governors of the provinces. And indirectly, he participates in debates. Uh, he gauges socially and politically with members of the Senate. And they know which side their bread is buttered on. They mm. need his support if they're going to advance uh, their careers. And that process develops a sort of group who are reliant upon the emperor and are reliant upon Augustus for their promotion and sets up informal political networks, which means that they offer loyalty to, to Augustus. If he needs to get anything done, he just asks somebody nicely and they are nicely obliged mm. to do what he says. And that's how the system works. It works through a system, systematic spreading of power through networks of influence. So in a lot of modern democracies, Senate bodies still exist. And oftentimes they review bills and 
if they're reviewing a bill, they can choose to pass the bill into law or they could choose not to pass a bill into law. So when Octavian is now Augustus, what's the relationship between the Senate, the, Rome, the, the Senate in Rome, the consuls and Augustus in a de jure, an, an official capacity? Although we talk about the Senate ruling in Republican Rome, it officially doesn't do that. The Senate is always an advisory body. It is composed, comprised of the leading men of the state, the men who've had experience in foreign wars, experience as magistrates, and they advise the current magistrates. The current magistrates, led by the consuls or the whole series of junior magistrates, take all the important decisions in Rome. Um, if they need to take, they need to pass a law, that law is proposed to an assembly of the people. It's not a, an electoral process that we're used to in our representative democracies. It, people just gather together on a day in a place in Rome and then cross specially built uh, bridges uh, and cast their votes to create a law that has been proposed. And then laws bind future generations. Now, Augustus uh, was initially consul every year. So uh, from 31, he takes the consulship every year down to 23. In 23, he lays down the consulship, which is you know, the most important executive position in Rome. And after that point, he only takes it for ceremonial purposes. And instead, he uses these informal structures of power to advise the consuls on what they should do. He has power outside Rome, what's called proconsular power, which enables him to command the armies, to instruct magistrates in those provinces, uh, and actually to enact law uh, in, those, in those areas. But in Rome itself, it's very unclear what formal powers he had. He may have had a veto uh, of the actions of mm. uh, the consuls, but he never used it. Hmm. When historians look back on Octavian's life, then, um, post uh, thirty BC, so when he's Augustus, what do, what do, what what's the narrative about him as a as a ruler, an emperor, whatever the moniker is at that point that 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 we can use? Well, it's a really interesting problem. Um, in part, there is a question of how you evaluate what he did. Rome had had a period of civil wars, repeated civil wars, from about 133 down to the, the, the War of Actium in 31. They come to an end. They come to an end under Augustan hegemony. Mm -hmm. And the bringing of peace to Rome is celebrated architecturally, in art, in poetry, and in uh, Augustus's own presentations. Mm -hmm. That brings to Rome considerable political, financial, and economic benefits. And we also see a revival of cultural activity in the city. It's a golden age of poetry, for example. But it's hmm. a point at which Augustus then invests heavily in the, uh, in the urban infrastructure of the city. He builds on a lavish scale. He puts in aqueducts. He repairs roads. He uh, repairs the, the sewage system of the city. Um, he beautifies it, he puts on elaborate games. And 
the reaction to uh, Augustan rule depends in part on how you evaluate those sorts of contributions to Roman society and Roman political life against the clear fact that he establishes a monarchy which takes power away from the people and from the senatorial structures of power. Mm. So there is the payoff in this system which becomes explicit in later authors when they say that uh, Augustus presents the people with peace and security in exchange for their liberty. Hmm. So the political evaluations that we've got in modern literature and in ancient literature turn on that political question of what do you value most in your society? Do you value the cultural and political achievements? Do you value security? Or do you value political liberty? Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's let's go back then a little bit in this um, uh, period of time. Let's understand better um, how we got to a point of an, an Augustus. So can you um, share what transpired leading up to this point of the battle uh, successful for Octavian over Mark Antony? Um, there's also the term like the first triumvirate. Can you can you tr try to put a, you know, a, a ribbon on that that area? Rome in its last century of the Republic went through a period of considerable civil violence. It begins around 133 when one of the people's representatives, the tribunes of the plebs, as they're called, was murdered by a, a senatorial mob. That period of violence mm. and civil wars runs down, as I said at the moment earlier, down to 30. Mm. There are two forms of that violence. One is popular insurrection, riots, which were put down by the senatorial group. And the other is violence, which comes from military leaders or military forces mm -hmm. uh, who fight large scale civil wars, which stretched across the Mediterranean. Now, in 49, one of the major, two of the major figures of the period were Pompey the Great, who'd conquered much of the Eastern Mediterranean mm -hmm. and uh, Jerusalem. Um, and was fabulously wealthy uh, and enormously successful as a general. Mm -hmm. And Julius Caesar, who had been victorious in Gaul. As Julius Caesar wants to come back to uh, Italy to resume his life after the conquest of Gaul, the senators who are opposed to him use Pompey against him and threaten Caesar with prosecution, which would end his political career, uh, and would, may see him either executed or, or, or exiled. And Caesar tries to negotiate a way out of this problem uh, and find some sort of salute political solution, and that doesn't happen. So Caesar and Pompey fight a civil war, which Caesar wins. Then Caesar establishes himself as dictator and he defeats all the various senatorial and republican armies and starts a process of reform. This leads to him being extremely unpopular in Rome. And he decides that one of his routes to popularity is actually to go off and fight another war, 
against the Parthians in, in the east, roughly the area of, of uh, Iraq. As he is preparing to go, and in his last meeting of the Senate before he heads off to the east, a group of conspirators gather round him in the Senate house and stab him to death, led by Brutus and Cassius. And Brutus and Cassius think by doing this, they have removed the tyrant and they are going to restore the Republic. So they lift their daggers in the air and they come out of the Senate House proclaiming that they have returned freedom to Rome. Unfortunately, not everybody agrees with them. And the consul of the time, Mark Antony, is a very close associate of Caesar. Mark Antony tries to establish a peace between the assassins and the Roman crowd who are very pro-Caesar and himself. And over the rest of 44, after the assassination on March the 15th, there's an uneasy truce between Mark Antony and the assassins. But then the assassins go east mm -hmm. to take up their provinces. Mark Antony secures an army and he begins a campaign against the assassins, which leads to battles mm -hmm. uh, in early 43. Mm -hmm. At that point, Octavian, who is a really young man at the time, 18, is, and who was in Greece when Caesar was assassinated, comes back to Rome and he proclaims himself the heir of Caesar and says that he will avenge himself on Caesar's murderers. And he uses that to gather his own army. So you've got Antony with one army in Italy, Octavian with another army. And in 43, once Antony is no longer consul, the Senate raised two other armies in Italy in order to fight Antony. So now you've got four armies in Italy competing. Are Mark, Antony, and Octavian allies at this point? At this point, they're enemies. They're competing for the leadership of the Caesarian group. Okay. And then what's the relationship with Octavian and Julius Caesar? Uh, Octavian is Julius Caesar's nephew. Yeah. And he's adopted by, by his will. And that's a pretty standard thing for mm -hmm. a Roman. So if you don't have a, a child, what you do is you adopt posthumously. Uh, and you adopt from someone who's close in the family. So you, he adopted uh, Octavian. Yeah. Okay. What that enabled Octavian to get normally would be Caesar's estate, Caesar's land, all the stuff mm -hmm. he had privately. You never adopted someone to take your political position. Mm -hmm. So what Octavian is doing here, and it's the first move towards monarchy, is saying, look, I'm taking on his, his uh, estates, his private wealth, but I'm also taking on his political position. Uh, I'm sort of an inheritor of that political position. And that allows them to build a military force of people who were loyal to, to, to Caesar. Mm -hmm. in, in spring 43, there's battles in North Italy, Antony loses and he heads north and goes into Gaul. And there he meets with uh, a guy called Lepidus who'd had a big army in Spain. Mm -hmm. And Lepidus joins with Antony, perhaps somewhat against uh, Lepidus's will, and they'd start the process of marching back into Italy. Octavian at this point is on the Senate side, but then he defects 
to join Antony uh, and Lepidus. Is, uh... And together, they formed the triumvirate, the three magistrates of Rome. Are Brutus and Cassius still in the picture at this point? Brutus and Cassius, um, when they realized that the population of Rome were not terribly well disposed towards them, had both left Italy and had headed up to the east. And when they went east, they started to raise troops and depose anybody, any governor of the east who was friendly towards uh, Caesar or the Caesareans. Mm -hmm. And they, by this time, had taken control of most of the eastern provinces and were gathering to themselves a very large army with the prospect of having to fight uh, Octavian, Antony, and Lepidus. Mm -hmm. So when Mark Antony uh, combines forces with uh, Lepidus, Octavian is uh, in Rome, um, having re good relations, decent relations, it sounds like, with the Senate. He, he's in North Italy, so he's in Mutina, um, uh, so up near Bologna. Okay. Um, uh, and he's communicating with the, with the Senate. Mm -hmm. And the Senate have a very odd view of uh, Octavian at this point. Um, they've seen what he's done for them. They've seen he's got uh, this large army behind him. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's still there only because he is the nephew of Julius Caesar. He's still astonishingly young. And you have to remember that to uh, become a prominent Roman, you, the, it was an age limit to it. So to become consul, you had to be 42. Mm. Sometimes this, this rule is breached, but this is not. It's because of the 42. He's 18. Um, so the m men in the Senate, these uh, elderly men who've had lots of experience who've been consuls, looked at him and saw this young man of no natural authority. And they took against him. So the leading figure of the Senate at this time uh, says this is a youth who is to be raised, to be praised, and to be dropped. And that rumor then comes to Octavian, who doesn't take kindly to it. Mm. Now, in the battles of Utina, one of the consuls gets killed, and so they have to replace the consul. And Octavian sends troops to Rome to ask whether he could be consul. Mm. Now, the prospect of an 18-year-old becoming the senior magistrate of Rome is just unthinkable uh, for the Roman elite. So they armed and they armed, and they sent the soldiers away having told them what they thought, which was not very friendly. But at that point, they're losing the war in, the, in Gaul. Uh, there's been this union between Lepidus and uh, Antony. Mm -hmm. Octavian turns his troops around and he marches them on Rome. And the Senate were just not ready for it. So they've insulted this guy. They've told him who's, who's boss. They're expecting him just to obey the instructions that they've sent. And he turns up outside Rome with his legionary armies. At this point, the Senate have one legion in Rome with which to oppose him. No way they can stand against him. So as he parks his legions outside the city before coming in, one by one, the senators defect to him. They come out, the, out of the gates and they say, welcome Octavian, mm. welcome to the city. And that then establishes Octavian as being in charge of Rome at that point. And it's from there he's able to send embassies out to uh, Lepidus and Antony, inviting them into an alliance, which is then formed at the end of 43. Hmm. And that 
formation, that alliance, is that the triumvirate? Can you explain more about that? Yeah, so uh, in 43, mm -hmm. they find a stray tribune who they can tell what to do. And he proposes a war, which is a Lex Titia. He's mm -hmm. called Titius. Um, uh, and uh, the law effectively suspends the Roman constitution mm. and establishes uh, Antony, Lepidus and Octavian as three men, triumphia just means three men, for the constitution, or it might be reconstitution, of the Roman Republic and gives them absolute powers in that regard. They can do what they like, they can mm. break any law. Now, one of the principles of the Roman Republic one of the reasons why it is established and why we should think back to the era of kings was that it was a citizen republic it was there to protect the citizens from any power which might threaten them so romans were protected from civil violence and the function of law was to protect citizens mm -hmm. with the triumvirate law is suspended so that the lives of the citizens are no longer protected. And this is done because of the murder of Caesar, which is seen as a break in Roman traditions. But it then allows Octavian, Lepidus and Antony to purge the Roman elite of their enemies. Mm. And a reign of terror then follows. But it is established through the passing of a law which empowers them to act in these sorts of ways. And is that the first triumvirate at that point? That, that, is, some, that is the triumvirate. It's sometimes called the second triumvirate mm. uh, because there was an earlier alliance of three individuals, but it is the first point in which you have a legally constituted group of three men with these emergency powers. The Romans have a tradition of in a crisis, appointing a dictator, which is where we get our modern term dictator. Mm -hmm. And a dictator is a person who has almost absolute powers uh, in normally in engaging with a military emergency. So you know, if the enemy comes over the horizon and you don't know what to do, you appoint a dictator, they grab all the troops they possibly can and they go out and defeat the enemy. Mm -hmm. And then they come back and they lay down the power, sometimes after a week even. Um, mm -hmm. So they're using that tradition of an emergency power in order to justify uh, their own extended uh, magistracy on this emergency measure. But their triumphal power is set to last for five years. Hmm. So they say we've got to control Rome for five years in order to constitute the Republic once more. In fact, they then renew it after five years and it goes on for 10 years. During that period then, this, would the Senate have existed still, but it just it didn't have any effectual power because it was somewhat in a dictator mode, the um, Rome at that point? Because the systems of government, the only systems of government that the Romans had were Republican, uh, they still ruled through those Republican systems. So we have uh, decrees, which we actually find in some cities in in modern Turkey, uh, where the Senate is consulted by the triumvirs in order to make rulings about things like tax in the provinces. So the Senate continues to meet, the magistrates continue to sit, although they are appointed at this point by the triumvirs, 
according to a register and appointed several years in advance. Mm -hmm. um, and those normal functions of government seem to continue as if the Republic was uh, still in mm. a existence. But it's overseen by these three individuals and all the important decisions of the state are taken by these three individuals. Okay. So constitutionally and legally, you can look at it and think, well, it looks quite like the Republic, but actually politically and, and in political legal reality, it's these three who control everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happens to Lepidus? Well, Lepidus, Lepidus has a, a rather uh, strange career, and uh, there are two stories about Lepidus which parallel each other. The first story is how Antony gets him into the um, gets him into the triumvirate in the first place. So he's writing to Cicero saying, "I'm going to be a Republican. I'm going to support the Senate. I'm going to go and I'm going to beat Antony uh, when we meet in Southern Gaul." And this takes him forever. He's he's clearly delaying as he marches very very slowly towards meeting Antony, mm -hmm. and Antony then mar marches past Marseille, past Forum Unity. And the two armies then draw close to each other. Uh, Lepidus hears that the soldiers of the various armies are fraternizing, but he thinks nothing of it. He sets the, the, uh, the watch for the night and he goes to bed. He wakes up in the morning and he hears a noise. He comes out of his tent in a state of undress hmm. and he finds Antony in his, is, in, is in his camp chatting to his soldiers which is not normally terribly good news. Um, so he, he then tries to put on his armor as quickly as he can. And Anthony says, welcome friend, you are my ally. Um, mm. We're going to make peace together. Uh, it's time us Caesarians stuck together. And Lepidus, looking at all the people who are now loyal to Anthony around him, thinks that might be quite a good idea. Mm. And he then writes a letter to Cicero, uh, uh, who is essentially in charge of the Senate at this point, or the most influential person in the Senate, said, I would have fought the battle. I really would. I would have beaten him. But the troops defected. Hmm. Um, so that's that's gets him into the triumphal period uh, and uh, the, the triumphal alliance. And, and I mean, he's then the th third wheel in that. He's given the provinces of, in, in Africa. Um, hmm. Now, in uh, 36... The son of Sextus Pompeius, son of Pompey the Great, Sextus Pompeius, is in Sicily. And Octavian invades Sicily in order to get rid of him. And Lepidus also invades Sicily from Africa. And the two meet up, having defeated Sextus Pompeius. At which point Lepidus demands that Octavian will give him a new settlement in new provinces and that he is treated more seriously. Mm. And then he goes to bed. Uh, and when he wakes up, he discovers that Octavian is in his camp, um, chatting to his troops, uh, at which point um, he makes his peace with Octavian. But Octavian is a, a not such a nice man as Antony. Mm. So Octavian says, yes, yes, you can come to Rome uh, and uh, I, will, I will allow you to be in Rome. But he effectively exiles him from the city and keeps him in a villa uh, in, in the Italian hills mm. and away from political life in Rome and spends the rest of Lepidus's life making fun of him uh, from time to time in the Senate. Keeps him alive, hmm. but doesn't allow him to have any political power. After that point, uh, the triumvirate, although it exists in name as a triumvirate, is really uh, uh, Octavian uh, and Antony. That's how we get to the two, and then eventually the, the one. Eventually the last the one, yes. Standing.
So when you look back on this uh, epoch, where, when do you think the inflection point happened? When, do you when, when would you call the, uh, the Republic ceasing and the Empire starting? It's, it is a problematic question. Um, I, I think the Republic is over uh, by the time that uh, Brutus and Cassius are killed. Uh, when Antony and Octavian defeat them uh, and establish themselves mm. as being triumphers without challenge, apart from Lepidus, for the next 10 years, neither of them are ever going to give up power at that point. They're looking for ways in which their power will continue. They're not going to step down after their period of triumphal power. Uh, Antony goes to the east and he uh, then effectively marries Cleopatra. Uh, some legal qualms there about what's going on. And he establishes a dynasty with Cleopatra. And it seems to be his intention that Antony and Cleopatra will then be at the heart of a new settlement for the Romanese. Octavian uh, stays in the West, and he seems to be looking at ways in which he can make his hegemony in the West more permanent. Um, there is the war that is then fought between the two of them is a war really about who is going to control the Roman world, not a war about who is, whether the Republic is going to be restored. So there is no real attempt to restore the Republic, or neither side would attempt to restore the Republic in, in 30 to 28. After that point, there seems to be only one moment in which the Romans, and this is at 500 years of successful Republican government, considered the restoration of the Republic. And that's after the murder of Caligula, who for, some, for, for good reason is thought to be insane, and for a, a small number of days, the Senate debate whether they should have a republic again. So the inflection point, I think, uh, lies in uh, 40, when the last of the senatorial opposition to the triumphs is defeated. The debate may uh, still go on, but it seems uh, reasonable. You've pegged it at uh, 40, around 40 BC, the defeat of Brutus and uh, Cassius. It's great, yes. Richard. Yeah, we really dug into uh, this topic today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and thank you very much for uh, allowing me to talk through this really fascinating period of, of history. Uh, again, for uh, everyone listening, if you want to pick up um, any of Dr. Alston's uh, books, a couple are Rome's Revolution, the Roman Civil Wars and the Fall of the Republic. That was Oxford University Press. Another one, Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117, that's Routledge. I'll drop links uh, to both those books on the show notes on the episode uh, episodes associated subpage on the IthacaBound.com website. Uh, Richard and everyone listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you very much. Dr. Alston is a wonderful storyteller and very enjoyable to listen to, and I found his commentary on a way to evaluate Octavian's life as Augustus is based on what one values most quite profound, and I think that kind of rationale can be applied to many things in life. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.